Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Our passage of scripture today is Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. And when I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are, who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from, from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Man, look at that. Do you guys, do you guys notice the weather outside? You see how beautiful this is? I, for a little bit, forgot the sun actually put off heat. I don't know if you guys did or not, but, uh, but I definitely did. Uh, but uh, I'm so glad to see you guys this Sunday. Um, last week was such a, a pleasure to be able to uh, worship our, our risen Lord, the fact that Jesus did not remain in the grave, but he rose again. And so we want to continue to, to celebrate that and to, and to live out that truth. Uh, and in so doing so, we're actually going to be getting back into our study of the book of Colossians after taking a, a few weeks off from it. And I kind of want to just kind of refresh our minds with what the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote this letter, is, is teaching here specifically in chapter 3, because that's where we're going to be uh, spending our time this morning. And essentially, he is saying that if you are a true Christian, if you are a true Christian, a, a born-again believer, then you, my friends, have a brand new identity. You've got a brand new identity. Your old self is dead and gone, was crucified on the cross with Christ. And now we are to embrace this new life in Christ. We're to, we're to live it out, and we do so by daily putting on this new self. Almost like it's a, it's a cloak you put on every single day. We are to put on our new self. Now, there are still vestiges of the old self that still kind of want to linger around, right? I think all of us feel that to one degree or another. And verses 5 through 8 of Colossians 3 gives this long list of sins that we all once walked in. And because we are not yet made perfect, we must set ourselves to putting those things away, to putting those old sins away, to putting that old self away, and by putting them to death, as Colossians 3 verse 5 puts it. Now, again, this is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. You're not going to arrive this side of glory to, to that perfection, right? Now, if you believe that once you become a Christian, all of your, your sinful predilections will just kind of vanish overnight, I've got bad news for you. It's not going to happen. However, 
we do live in the hope that we have been freed from that sin. We've been freed from our sin, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we do not have to live in that old self any longer. We have been given the power to put those sins to death in us, and we have been given the power to not live in the person we once were, but to live in the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Jesus Christ. My friends, I don't know about you, but I long for when that process of sanctification is complete. And it's not going to happen until we're on the other side of glory, but friends, that, that great hope that we have is that this, the sins that we still wrestle with in our lives right now, there's coming a day when, when they're going to be no more. When you're not going to have that daily wrestle. When you're not going to have that, that struggle to, to put to death that old self because it will be long gone. And the hope that we have today is that the sins we wrestle with every day, it will not, they will not follow us into eternity. That's the hope that we have. And I can't wait for that day. And so Paul then encourages us to live life in the reality of our new identity in Christ. This means that the Christian life has a goal. It has, has an aim to it. If you're fancy, it's got a telos. It's got a purpose for it. And that aim is found in verse 17 of Colossians 3, where Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So another way to put that is that the ultimate goal in your life, what you should strive for above everything else, is to magnify the name of Jesus, right? That's the ultimate purpose of your life. Nothing should come above that. That is the reason for your life. That is what you should aim for in this life. Your aim should not be, should not be wealth. It should not be material gain. It shouldn't even be your own comfort. And friends, not even your own happiness should not be your primary goal in this life. But to do that which glorifies God. And amazingly, but not surprisingly, aiming to glorify God will also be what He uses to bring us the most peace and the most joy in this life. Now, in verses 12 through 16, Paul gives a general overview of how we are to live this God-glorifying new life in relationship with others in the church. Then in verses 18 through uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul gets a bit more specific. He, gets, he kind of focuses in a little bit more, and he lays out for us what this gospel living looks like in particular relationships. Now, this is important because we can sometimes be guilty of kind of segmenting our lives and saying that kind of like, I've got my, I've got my work life, I've got my, uh, my home life, and then I've got my church life over here. And they're kind of segmented, and we kind of erect walls up between these, and, and you're not supposed to transgress the boundaries. Work life stays at work. Home life, you just stay at home. Church life stays on Sunday, stays in the church. And we segment our lives in these ways. 
And there's not meant to be any overlap. Have you ever met anyone who uh, doesn't like their food to touch? Have you met somebody like that? My sister was a lot like that. She, Paul's like that. Yeah, you would be, Paul. You would be one of those guys. That doesn't surprise me one bit. But there were, for my sister anyway, and for apparently Will up there, there were clear territorial boundaries between her mashed potatoes and her mac and cheese, and, and they were never to cross. They were never to cross, or she would have to get a completely new plate. And that's how we can actually be tempted to live our lives, completely segmented. You don't, you don't cross boundaries of these different areas of our lives. But Jesus, Jesus actually says, no, no, no. No, no, no. You are meant to live your entire life for me. There's, there's not meant to be any borders. Remember Colossians 3.17. Glorifying God is not something that is to be your aim only at church and only in your relationship to other Christians. But glorifying God is to permeate every part of your life. Glorifying God transcends those borders that we try to erect in our lives. Your church life, friends, the way that you are at church, should look no different to the rest of your life because the goal remains the same, to glorify God. So Paul looks at how the new life is to play out in the household, in your, in your home, in your home life. Wives to husbands. Husbands to wives, children to parents, and parents to children. And then he speaks how the new life should play out in relationship between bondservant and master to bondservant. Now there can be a lot of misconceptions about these passages, about these passages in particular. The advent of feminist theology and liberation theology have actually done much to damage an accurate and biblical understanding of these verses. And so we want to break them up into two sermons this morning, focusing first with living the new gospel-centric life in the household. We want to, we want to be clear what these passages actually mean. Now, if you are not married, or if you do not have children, you may be tempted to think that this is a passage that doesn't have to do with you this morning. And so therefore, you can kind of just, just mentally check out. But friends, I want to encourage you to not do that. To not do that this morning. Remember Colossians 3.16. Go back just a few verses to Colossians 3.16. We are to have the Word of Christ dwell among us, and we have a responsibility to one another to teach and to correct each other. Right? You remember that? And so you may have a brother or sister in Christ come to you and, and share with you struggles that they're having in their marriage. And so are you to say, well, well, sorry, I wish I could help, but I'm not married? Is that what you're to tell them? No, not at all. You should be ready and able to point them to Christ and the purpose of their mar marriage, whether you are married or not. And if someone comes to you and is having difficulty with their children, are you to say, well, you know what, I hate to hear that, but you know what, I've got nothing for you because I don't have kids myself? No. You should be able to point them to passages such as those we are reading today. You should be, be ready to point them to what God's Word has to say about it. 
whether or not you have children yourself. Because, brothers and sisters, simply because you may not be in the same life stage as someone else does not mean that you can't point them to what God's Word has to say about the problems that they're struggling with. Right? I believe that we, we must get past this thinking that because passages are describing life circumstances that we aren't personally going through at the moment, therefore there's nothing for me to get out of it. We've got to get past that mindset. Friends, as long as we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are married or have kids, as long as those kind of people exist in your life, passages such as the passages we're going to look at today has to do with you, is important for you. And friends, look at, look at who wrote this letter, for goodness sake, right? Man, you, you cannot get any less married or, or any child less than the Apostle Paul. You can't do it. And yet, though he didn't have personal experience with any of these things, with marriage or having children, he still knew he needed to relay what God had to say about all of it. Right? And so don't check out. You may have someone in your life that needs you to point them to Christ in their marriage or in their parenting. Now, much of this sermon is actually taken from a sermon that I preached on way back in Mark 10 on covenantal marriage with some changes here and there. So if you want a, a fuller teaching on the, on the nature of marriage and the purpose of marriage, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But, uh, but for now, that was a, kind of a doozy of an introduction. I feel like we're kind of already done with sermon number one. But uh, before we go any further, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I thank you, God, that you have led each and every single person in this room here to Redeemer Church this morning to worship you and to glorify your name. And Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. And so I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit guides us this morning as we, as we dive into it. Please guide us. Please protect us from error. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, well, now as Paul begins to get into how the new life is to be lived for the glory of God in more specific relationships, he turns his attention first to how a wife is to relate to her husband. And he says in verse 18, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. And so wives, this is your responsibility. This is your duty as a wife. You are instructed to submit to your husbands. Now, it's really important to know that this submission is not an enforced, servile oppression of the husband over the wife. That, that is not what is in view here at all. Though there are many in the modern feminist movement who would have you believe that that is what Paul is talking about here. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. The specific Greek word used here in this verse for submission is hypotacetia. Now that's a, that's a long one, right? Hypotacetia. All right? There's a squiggly line in my notes, so I don't think I spelled it right. <laughs> but this word, hypotacetia, is not a harsh word uh, or, a, or a harsh order intended to bring about this, this cringing subjugation. 
right? That's not what that word means or connotes at all. Rather, it is a call to the wife to make a deliberate decision to choose to act in a certain way. To submit to your husband, yes, but to do so voluntarily and willfully. And this is important because it is not for your husband to make you submit. There is no command in Scripture at all for the husband to force his wife into this godly submission. It is to come from you voluntarily. It is to originate from you, from your will, from your desire, from your heart. Now Ephesians 5, 22-24 brings some more clarity to this subject of the relationship between a wife and a husband. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. The wife is to submit to the husband as to the Lord, as to Jesus. Now, this might seem ridiculous to you, wives. You may, you may hear that and you may, may be thinking, oh man, have you actually met my husband? Have you, have you met him? Have you heard the things that have actually come out of his mouth and I'm supposed to submit to him as to the Lord? You're crazy. You're laughing too much. All right. But there is a grand reason. There's a grand reason why you are instructed to submit to your husband in this way. And it is given to you by Paul in, the verse, uh, in verse 23 of Ephesians 5 where he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so in Ephesians 1.22, to kind of do just a recap of the, of the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, verse 22, Christ is described as the head who, who governs the cosmos. He's the head of the entirety of the cosmos. And in Ephesians 5, verse, or sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 15, he is described as the head who lovingly rules and cares for his church. And now, as countercultural as this may sound, there is an analogy that is being made between the headship of Christ and the headship of the husband. And we must recognize that God requires husbands to exercise the same type of loving rule and care as the head or leader of their wives, who are called by God's Word to embrace that. Now, if the husband is supposed to be a picture of Jesus, then what is the wife to be a picture of? The church. The wife is to be a picture of the church. Wives, I really want you to understand this role in the covenant of marriage because it is no small role. It is no small responsibility. You are to be a shining and glorious representation of the church to the world. Did you, did you know that? Did you recognize that that is your responsibility in the marriage? You are to be a glorious representation of the church. And that is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, to, uh, submit in everything to their husbands. And so the role of the wife is far grander than just the relational aspect that we so much focus on in, in the modern day. 
Wives, within the covenant of marriage, you are a living picture to the rest of the world, to everyone around you, the splendor of the church. You're meant to be a living lesson of how the church, out of love and trust, submits to the authority and the headship of Christ our Savior. This submission to your husbands, above all else, is a service and an act of worship that you wives, or or even soon-to-be wives, aren't giving to your husbands, but ultimately giving to the Lord. That is why back in our passage in Colossians 3, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This word fitting means pleasing. You kind of just change that out with pleasing. The basis of your submission to your husband, and then listen, listen really close to this part. The basis of your submission to your husband isn't simply your love for your husband or even how deserving your husband is to have you submit to him. That is not to be the foundation, the basis of your submission to Him. The basis, the overarching reason behind your submission to your husband is that it pleases the Lord. That's the grounding. It pleases the Lord. That in it, you bring glory to God. Now, I want to touch upon some important biblical qualifications for this godly submission of the wife to the husband. Now, I'm borrowing this teaching from a man named uh, Richard Koken and another godly pastor friend of mine back in Tennessee. They both have done a wonderful job of laying these out, so I'm leaning on their godly knowledge and wisdom here. But first, this submission to the husband is always to be conditional upon obedience to God. Meaning that submission does not denote putting your husband's will above that of Christ's will. Specifically, if a husband demands in a particular circumstance that his wife disown or disobey the word of God or commit immorality, or if an unbelieving husband attempts to tell her she cannot be part of a local church, she should not obey him. She is to show her obedience to Christ first by disobeying her husband's wicked commands. You see something similar in regards to civil disobedience when your government tells you to do something against the Word of God in Acts 5. You're supposed to submit to the rule of the government that's over, over, over you unless they are calling you to do something that is against the Word of God. Kind of a similar picture here. Also, if the husband's behavior towards the wife is corrupt, for example, sexually degrading or cruel, for example, physically or emotionally abusive, she is not required to submit to those abuses without protest to his sin or getting herself to safety. Submitting to those abuses is not godly submission. Can't stress that enough. That is not godly submission. Secondly, submission is not to be mindless. It's not to be mindless. Submission does not mean that you leave your brain at the altar. Koken wisely points out that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed with great passion to His Father for permission to avoid the suffering of the cross. But His concluding commitment was, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so to submit is not to become a doormat 
unable to offer an opinion or express disagreement with your husband's viewpoint. Rather, if the husband has any sense, he will listen and greatly value and take into deep consideration the viewpoint of his wife. But the bottom line, after all of the debate, after all of the talking, the wife is to willingly submit to the leadership of her husband as is pleasing to the Lord. Because even if he makes a poor decision, listen, even if he makes a poor decision, which will happen time and time again, stop smiling. You showed respect to your husband as leader of your home, and you glorified God in your obedience to Scripture. Thirdly, submission does not in any way, in any way, mean lesser than. Men and women, again, despite what modern second and third wave feminism movement would have you believe, are all throughout Scripture given equal dignity and worth in the eyes of God. And this is made especially clear in terms of those within the new covenant, with those who are saved in Christ Jesus within the church in Galatians 3, 28, when Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, it is important to, to note here that this does not abolish any distinction between people, right? Or abolish the differing roles of husbands and wives, but it points to the, equal, the equality of dignity and worth of all who are in Christ Jesus. So this means that the roles of the husbands and wives are not based on any skill or competency that is intrinsic within a man or a woman. God didn't make the man to be the head of the home because he is more competent in it, but simply because it was the sovereign plan of God stretching back all the way to Genesis 2. Not only that, but submission is also a part of the Holy Trinity itself. Did you know that? Submission is part of the Trinity itself. Now really pay attention here, because remember the Garden of Gethsemane just mentioned a moment ago where Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Do you remember us talking about that a second ago? Well, hold that in your mind, because Jesus, the Son, from all eternity, is in joyful and loving submission to the Father. However, the Son is of equal dignity. He is of equal value, of equal importance as God the Father. So do not for a moment believe that submission makes a wife, makes, makes you lesser. Because to say so would be to imply that submission makes Jesus lesser than the Father. Lastly, it is so important to know, wives, that submission will be blessed and rewarded by Christ in heaven. Even when godly submission goes unappreciated by a husband or is even mocked by family and friends on earth, our Lord Jesus has been the suffering servant who knows how hard it can be to submit to others and will reward the wife who submits to her husband for the Lord's sake. Not for her husband's sake, for the Lord's sake. Especially when her husband is being an idiot. 
Wish you were down with the kids now, Lord, don't you? Well, rest assured, sisters, that your godly submission, your, your beautiful representation of the church in the new covenant with Christ is part of your laying up treasures in heaven that neither moss nor rust can destroy, that our Lord speaks of in Matthew 6. Now, Paul turns his attention to husbands. He says in Colossians 3.19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'm going to bring Ephesians 5 back into this conversation because in this passage, Paul tells us exactly what kind of love husbands are to have for wives. Ephesians 5.25, Paul gives this charge to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, husbands in this room, I, I, I pray that you feel the gravity of this command from Paul. Husbands, I want you to, for a moment, cast your mind back to the Gospels. To those images and scenes of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Of feeding the 5,000, of healing the blind and the lame, of all those ways that He miraculously and lovingly provided for those who would place their faith in Him. Of Jesus carefully listening to the pleas and the woes of the hurting people around Him. And then ultimately, of the insurmountable love and mercy that Jesus showed as He, for the sake of the church, endured the mocking, the beating, the scourging, and finally, the death on the cross for us. Now husbands, as those images are flashing across your mind, you need to realize right now that that is the love that Paul is telling you that you are to have towards your wife. Jesus in Mark 10 says that He didn't come to be served, but to serve, and gave Himself as a ransom for many. Husbands, you didn't, you didn't get married to be served, but to serve. Loving your wife like Christ means being willing to give up your life for her. And until that is necessary, and hopefully it, it won't be necessary, but until that is necessary, it also means dying to what is easiest and comfortable for you in countless little ways to serve her as Christ serves the church. The church. And perhaps that means helping her with the chores or adapting your social or sporting commitments to spend more time with her or helping more with the kids and so on and so forth. But even more importantly, it means taking spiritual initiative in your home and in your marriage. Jesus' primary concern for His church is not the material, despite what some TV preachers would have you believe. Jesus' primary concern is seeing His bride, is seeing the church grow in their Christ-likeness. And brothers, that should be your primary concern for your wife as well. This is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 5, 26-27, where he says, He, meaning Jesus, gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
And remember, this is in the context of Ephesians 5, where Paul is talking about the kind of love that a husband is to have for his wife. This is where that's coming from. And so Paul is saying here that Christ died for us, for the church, to to sanctify us, to make us look more like Him, and to wash us clean through the water with the Word, meaning through the cleansing power of the Gospel, all so that He can present us to Himself in splendor. So that we can be radiant to Him. So that we will be beautiful in the eyes of Jesus because we will be without any spot or wrinkle. We will be holy and without blemish when the process of sanctification is done on the other side of glory. And so it is not a stretch to say that Paul, in Ephesians 5 here, sees this to be the husband's chief goal for the wife. A husband is to be concerned not primarily for his wife's short-term happiness alone, but for her long-term holiness. He needs to be primarily concerned for the day when his bride stands before Christ Jesus. So husbands, the questions that you should ask yourself are, are you leading her? Are you leading your wife to the feet of Jesus in all things? Are you pointing her to the sufficiency of Christ when you have plenty and when you have little? Are you interested in caring about her relationship with Christ or her prayer life or the joy that she feels in her salvation? Those are the chief concerns of a godly husband and is a significant way in which you are to love her. Now, husbands, this is a heavy and intense responsibility, one that should not be taken lightly. Your role in the marriage covenant is to be a reflection of the blazing love that Christ has for His church. And though we will fail time and time again, we should strive to be able to, and listen, we should strive to be able to point to our love for our wives as an example to the rest of the world, Christ's love for us. Have you ever thought about that, husbands? That you should be able to say, if you want to know a, a, an earthly picture, an incomplete picture, but still a picture of the way Christ loves us, look at how I treat my wife. So my brothers, just as we have no fear or hesitation in joyfully ordering ourselves under the loving authority and headship of Christ because He loves us in this splendid way, we should be loving and leading in this Christ-like fashion so that our wives, who represent the church in this living drama of the new covenant, will have no fear and no worry of ordering themselves under our own loving and sacrificial headship. Far from dealing with them harshly, we should love them with the same tenderness and care that Jesus loves us. Got that, husbands? Now, before I move on, there's a chance that some of you married folks in here this morning are are listening to this here or maybe even via the podcast but are, are kind of throwing elbows at your spouse right now. Saying something like, are you, are you listening, honey? 
You really need to, you really need to work on your submission. You really need to, you really need to work on your Christ-like love. But friends, if you look through Ephesians 5, I really encourage you to do so. You look through Ephesians 5, and if you look closely at Colossians 3:18 and 19, you'll notice something. You'll notice something. You will notice that the emphasis is on the duty of each spouse to each other. You see that? Meaning that you're meant to look at yourself and be mostly concerned how you can better live out your role in your marriage for the glory of God, regardless of how your spouse is or is not living up to their role. If each spouse is focused on their duty and obligation to their spouse above what they feel like they deserve from their husband or their wife, I believe we would have stronger and stronger marriages in our churches. I believe this is why Paul did not say, wives, be sure your husband is loving you correctly. He doesn't say that. And I think it's why Paul does not say, and husbands, be sure your wife is submitting to you correctly. He doesn't say that. Your first concern should be not how the other is living out their role, but how you are living out yours. Now, I spent a long time on the relationship between the husband and the wife because the marriage is meant to be the living picture of the gospel. It's living drama that gets lived out. It's the demonstration to the rest of the world Christ's love for His people and His people's loving submission to Him. And if we desire to help our children to help our kids understand the gospel message that we teach them, we should first be concerned with demonstrating it in our marriages. And Paul then gives his attention to how children are to live their new life in Christ, to live their new life in Christ in relationship to their parents. Looking back to Colossians 3, verse 20, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, one thing that we must keep in mind here is that Paul is giving this instruction within the context of a Christian family. Remember that he is writing this letter to the church in Colossae and therefore is writing to children within that church context. And I mention this because it's important to not go beyond the scope of what Paul is addressing here in this specific passage. Okay? There's no doubt that Paul believes that even unbelieving children should obey their parents. But that is not what Paul is addressing here. Paul here is specifically speaking to Christian children who are within a Christian home. And he says to them, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now Sam Storm says, when Paul says their responsibility to their parents extends to all things, he is reminding us that children are not the judges of what they should or should not obey in terms of parental precepts or commands. In the parallel passage in Ephesians 6, Paul declares that obedience to one's parent, parents is right, is the right thing to do. Children are not to base their obedience to their parents on whether or not they believe their parents to be good or bad. But their obedience, as Paul says here in our passage, sorry, brother, I got a little ahead of myself there. But as Paul says here in our passage, children, obey your parents. Why? 
Because it, because it pleases the parents? Because you agree with what the parents say? No, because it pleases the Lord. Now, parents, I believe this is a very important teaching point for our children. Because when we are telling our children what to do, and they, they finally make it to the age where they begin to ask that dreaded question, why? You knew it. Yeah, why? It is not altogether wrong to say, because I'm the parent, and that's why. But friends, we must not forget to root their obedience in something higher and grander than ourselves. Higher than the simple fact that we're their parents. We must root their obedience in the fact that it pleases the Lord when they obey. We have a responsibility that even as children or teens to tell them that their primary goal in their lives is to glorify God in all things. Are we telling our children that enough? And obeying their parents brings God that glory. We do not want the final answer of why our children should obey us to just be ourselves. Caleb will tell you, I'm, I'm not worthy of obedience in and of myself. That is not where Paul places the final answer for obedience. He places it, and we should place it as parents, in the glory and good pleasure of God. Paul then singles out fathers in verse 21 of Colossians 3, saying, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, Paul here is speaking into a culture that is very paternal in its family structure. And Paul is most likely singling out fathers here because in this culture, which the father was the sole disciplinarian, it was common for the fathers to act very severely with their children. In the Greco-Roman culture, it was the norm to have an extraordinarily high standard for your children and to, and to discipline them harshly if they fail to, to meet that standard. And there are many ways in our own meritorious culture where we can act the very same way. We can have those, those exceedingly high standards for our children. And we can act harshly when they don't meet those standards. And so Paul speaks into this and says that Christian fathers are to display the character of God even in their parenting, even in their interactions with their children. And the character of God is not one in which He deals with His children harshly, in a provoking manner that causes His children to be discouraged. That is not how God the Father interacts with us, His children. But rather, God deals with His children with compassion even in discipline, and even when that discipline hurts. Psalm 103, 8-14 shows the love of God for His children. And even intertwines it with the love that an earthly father should have for their children. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So this is the type of relationship we are to have with our children. Now the word provoke here in verse 21 refers to acting with undue severity in the exercise of discipline. And so friends, don't, don't hear me wrong. Okay, because firmness is necessary, but should always be tempered with purity of motive and a loving spirit, lest they become discouraged. Again, as Sam Storm says, an overly obsessive and exacting posture in parenting leads to emotional and spiritual irritation in the child. An inflexible, judgmental, and demanding temperament creates despondency in a child's heart. Faced daily with this harshness, children often simply give up, convinced that nothing they ever do will, quite, will be quite right or good enough to please their parents. And so, fathers and mothers, let us remember that not only should, should pleasing God be the root of our child's obedience to us, but it should also be the root of our parenting them. And so let us parent in a way that does not provoke our children or discourage them, but in a way that pleases and brings glory to God. Now we're out of time, so let me just say in conclusion, let us remember as husbands and wives, children and parents, friends with those who are married, uh, <clears throat> or who are friends with those who are married, or, or who have children, to allow the gospel to shape the entirety of our lives for what end? For the glory of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much again for this word that you have given us. Lord, I, I praise you that it is not left to, to us human beings to figure out how we are to live our life that is, that is meant to be pleasing and glorifying to you. But rather, you have given us your word. You have given us your wisdom that sometimes looks foolish to the world around us. But you've given us this book, this word, that leads us into righteousness, that leads us into a way of living that is pleasing to you. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that you allow us, that you help us to submit to that word, even when our flesh bucks against it. Against it. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name.